2: This show originally aired in 2017.
3: I got
1: that sunshine in my pocket, got that good soul in my feet, I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. My treasured food buddies are here. I'm going to get to them in a second, but I want to say what's coming up. We have a barbecue because Steve Reichlin, who is one of the greats in barbecue, has a new book out. We're going to tell you about that. And Amy Dickinson, who is the Ask Amy advice columnist, someone we adore, we will you hear her conversation awesome. in our third segment. She's written a memoir. We ask her about her experience with food. She's just absolutely fantastic. So we have that coming up. We've got a wine for you that is a white that is so rich that it goes even with barbecue. So great discoveries on this show. Plus the place to get a soft shell crab sandwich with bacon on it. I'm telling you, wait till you hear this. My treasured food buddies are here. Senior contributors, Chris Prosperi, Mark Raymond, and Robin Doyan Aiken is our senior producer and joins us on the show. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey. hey. Okay, here we go. To jump in, how do you eat meals? One, two, three. You know, sometimes people have snacks in between (laughs) sometimes.
3: Um, um, so
1: I was reading in a newspaper an article by a syndicated columnist, Barbara Damra. She's the great garden person, the garden primer and mm-hmm. other books we've had on this show a million times. So she's got this syndicated column going. And what I wanted to talk with you about is how you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Because her column was about the old adage that you eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. Yeah, I remember
4: you read,
3: that. A lot of
1: people have heard this phrase. And since I read this column, it was so persuasive mm. that I have started to try to eat like this.
4: A very European to reverse,
1: model. Is it? Yeah. To reverse the order of the way mm-hmm. I normally eat. Yep. I eat a quite decent breakfast, yep. and then I eat a light lunch, and yep. then a whopper of a yep. dinner. And she's saying, let's do it the other way, And she talks about how she does this. How do you all do it?
4: My first trip to Europe as a child, I remember that one being one of the weirdest things to me. It's why are we eating such big meals in the day? And then dinner, you usually get home from playing in the afternoon and dinner is this big meal. And in Europe, you get like this little flatbread sandwich kind of thing with a little pieces of meat on it. And it was great, but you're like looking around like, where's dinner? And mm-hmm. they do that model because it's healthier, right? Because you yeah. eat less when you're heading to bed and eat more when you're <coughs> in the – right, get going. In the work time. Yeah, in the work time. Yeah, yeah, it
5: makes sense to me. Mine's completely varied. In a general work type of flow – My breakfast would be super light, and then I would have a super big lunch because it's usually with clients or, you know, showing off some of my wares. As a wine broker. As a wine broker. So, you know, we're trying food with wine, or we're going to an account where they already serve our wine, so we're trying to try their foods and so on and so forth. And then dinner will be moderate, modest, although Mary does like... I was going
1: to say, what does Mary do?
5: Mary, well... (laughs) I mean, <laughs> we split the duties there. I cook a lot at home, uh-huh. but she'll usually like me to make a larger portion so she can have leftovers for the next day at work. That's smart. Yeah. That's
1: really smart. So, how about all of you? How I do always you do have it?
2: a pretty big breakfast because I have Robin. a big bowl of oatmeal every day. And then I just change it up by adding different things to it. So I always start the day with oh, hearty. Yes,
1: year round. Do you do oatmeal in the summer? Or? Yeah, I yeah, love oatmeal, okay.
2: and it gets me through. It's sometimes it's one o'clock before I realize, oh, lunchtime, because I've I've had that big breakfast. Do you do a big supper? Not usually, because we have little kids. So it's like pasta, chicken, Some and simple kind of yeah. things.
1: So yeah. you're already Quick doing
4: stuff. that way. I'd like to take the fifth because my mom is an avid listener of the show and (laughs) she's always yelling at me even though I'm really old now. She's still yelling at me for not eating the way I'm supposed to. (laughs) Which is? I eat a granola bar for breakfast. that's, That's not enough. In the car, worse, in the car with a cup of coffee and then lunch if I have it is something I grab out of the pantry cooler, like nibbles here and there. Yeah. And then I usually get home at around 10, 30, 11 o'clock realizing I totally forgot to eat. And then I make myself uh. a big meal, which is the worst thing you can do. But I'm starving because I totally forgot to eat the whole day long. Yeah, you're yeah. famished. It goes by so fast and you're yeah. working and you don't even think about it. And that right. is the opposite well, of what you just said you should do. Absolutely. <laughs> so,
1: um, you know, these small plates in restaurants have become a thing often priced you know quite quite well hmm. <laughs> so that it can work for them I understand that but it means that we as diners can have a small plate a glass of wine and you're done you know so so Barbara Damrush and her husband have this thing where they have gardens in Maine and so they are just pulling anything out of the garden that they can at nighttime oh. in the morning they're doing the Kingly breakfast, then they're doing the princely lunch, and then by dinner time, whatever mm-hmm. is around, and it's often with extras from the fridge at dinner time. So, um, one of her favorites is Colcannon Mark. You brought that to our show, made with leftover mashed potatoes, warmed up with spinach or kale out of the greenhouse. Along with bacon or butter, another one of her favorites is leftover rice fried in a little toasted sesame oil with carrots, onions, and any other vegetable that's on hand. A few nights ago, it was kind of cold, and they started rummaging around, and they had apples and crackers, a Huntsman's cheese, some fresh radishes from the greenhouse, raw carrots just pulled from the greenhouse, rounds of butternut squash. You know, she said our dinners tend to be kind of vegetable-centric, but with something really luscious, like a cheese, mm. and that's how they eat. I just find this yeah. fascinating.
4: I'm going to try it. Yeah, and I think it's coming. Look, the new restaurant in West Hartford, so help me with the name, Zahara, mm. and it's a Mediterranean place. And exactly. Rave reviews so far, and it's small plates. And that's the way we should eat at night. Okay. So, Mark,
1: can we move over to, before we get to the rest of the show and the barbecuing, um, this white wine is so rich and delicious. This is on our website, foodschmooze.org, with a picture of the label. Pasqua, Romeo and Juliet, Bianco, Bianco White... Right. It means white wine. But listen, it is so rich and mm. delicious. It is, seems like it goes with everything as we tried it on the show.
5: Yeah. Why is it had it's with, so rich? I had
1: it with a burger.
5: With a little bit of spiciness mm-hmm. to it, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it really just holds up well with it. And sweetness, too. The barbecue so, sauce added sweetness. Yeah. So this
1: is Italian. What's the story? You, you found this.
5: This is a white wine that kind of airs to the side of a white Amarone, just to mm-hmm. kind of give you a... A little Which mean? interesting thought. Well, Amarone is a style of wine from northern Italy in the Verona region. It's they a dry, red. It's a red. And they dry the grapes, the Valpolicella grapes, for at least four months, a okay. minimum of four yeah, months. Yeah. So they yeah. become complete raisins. Yeah. So you get super intense juice that they press from those raisins, and you get mm-hmm. a bursting flavor from a super and powerful they do a dry red here. wine.
1: So if you're not Italian... And you don't know Amarone that well. These red, rich Amarones are so intense that you would have them really only with an amazing red sauce, a deep, rich red sauce with sausages and meatballs. And, you know, it's... it's And, and it's it, got
5: to yeah. be loaded with herbs like and spices. And,
1: and they're and, not... Yeah. You know, these Amarones are among the most beautiful mm. wines in Italy. They're not inexpensive. Mm. So, so... But this... Having said that, we're looking at a white wine. We're talking so about a white wine. How does that compare?
5: So what they do here, which is really interesting, it's just one grape. The grape is called Garganaga. Mm. And people who know the grape Garganaga know that it's related to An old favorite, Suave, which is known in the Verona region. But what they do here is they dry this grape for three weeks, and it gives it a completely different complexity. Wow. It's got Mm. this alluring flavor Mm. of peaches and melon and citrus. Once you get that sip in your mouth, it's got a wonderful richness to it, and it's just so luscious and refreshing. The, The acidity is bright which means it's very crisp and sort of lively on the palate. So
1: what I'm getting, I don't know about you, Robin, but I'm getting like a a brightness at the back of my throat when I take this swallow. It's got a smoothness to it. So how do you get something, a white that's crisp and yet rich at the same time?
5: Well, that's, that's where the drying to, comes from. Yeah, I I've I've haven't had you, a wine wh- like this. When you dry those yeah, yeah, white grapes, one. you concentrate the sugar yeah. levels there. So mm-hmm. now the intensity of the flavors have just been, for if lack the, of a better word, concentrated. You
1: know, this kind of mixes up the whole thing. About white and red. Mm-hmm. If we had blindfolds on, I wish we had done this with oh, blindfolds on. Would you
3: think on. this was red? Would if it you was think warm? this was
1: red? I Probably. don't think so. Because of the pop at the back of my throat, I, I would know. say no. This no. is a white.
5: No, and because of the citrus and the but melon and the but peaches. But there's a there's Boldness. something there's in to it. There is weight to it. When it gets on your it. palate and you talk about that echo a, that you get, yeah. it kind of sticks burger, around.
1: A, the fat in a burger, the the spicy sauce we had. We're going to talk about that mm. next one. Even fish, right? right?
4: Like, yeah. Like oh, a spicy, Like a spicy uh, salmon, Indian, right? Indian. Yeah. My, hmm, terrific. So Absolutely.
1: it's at our website, foochmoose.org. And this is about.
5: This is $15 a bottle. Okay.
1: Pasqua Romeo and Juliet Bianco. Mark, this label is from the famed place in yes. Verona.
5: The courtyard where the Statue of Juliet is. And so
1: you see Aww. all kinds of... Um, yeah.
4: <laughs> 3,000 people a day write love notes on this wall. So this is good for a romantic-like Saturday dinner. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, you know uh, what, well, or just any Well, you could market time. it that way, but yeah. it's
1: really just good wine.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, okay. So fantastic. Foodschmooze.org. We have a picture of the label, all thanks to Robin, that you could take to your wine store if you don't want to say it, you can just spell it. But call ahead to your wine store to make sure they have it on the shelf because there's not enough space in wine stores to carry all mm-hmm. the wines. There are millions of wines coming out every year. And that way you're not a wasted trip. And a good wine store will have this for you in forty-eight hours. Okay, around fifteen dollars a bottle. Four yummies.
4: Oh, okay. No, Unpre- four almost, yummies. Almost unprecedented. Only oh, wow. oh, four can yummies. Can I also say
1: that Mark is Mark Raymond is in charge of Our Shelf Talkers. Now we Uh, have, I'm looking at one right now, Mm -hmm. we have these uh, labels that hang off the shelf in front of the wines we have on the show, recommended by the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, so you don't have to search forever, it's just hanging there. All right, soft show crabs are coming it's in. It's Love I am them. Such with a fan. Brown butter. My favorite Ooh, way is butter. brown butter and capers. Oh, and a little and lemon. lemon. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness.
4: <sighs> well, that's how I'm going to do them this weekend. I was thinking, I was like, what are we going to do with mm. this? Well, I know where weekend. I'm going. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> brown, I didn't think brown butter.
1: <laughs> An old friend of mine would dip them in a little flour. It's mm. not necessary nope. for our gluten free friends. Right. You, you just have to use cornstarch. It or doesn't nothing. matter or nothing. Not and then lamb. put in capers, brown the mm-hmm. butter, and put them in, and then Squeeze sliced almonds. Mm, that's Almond Almondine. It's fabulous, wow. absolutely fabulous. But Mark found a restaurant where he had them, and you got yeah, to hear I'm this hear about description.
5: This. It is that time of year, and I was yep. on the hunt, and yep. I am a little bit of a fan. So <laughs> when I hear that they're in the market, the ground starts I, rumbling. I, I, start, yep. I start thinking, yep. okay, I'm going to go work in this area of the state or yep. this market, yep. and I've got Get to online. find Get online. where I can find them for my lunch. And uh, I stopped in a, a great restaurant that I really enjoy. It's called The Restaurant at Rowayton, or sometimes referred to as Rowayton Seafood. Oh, yeah, sure. It's The down Restaurant in Rowayton.
1: at Rowayton. Correct. Yeah. And or it's
5: a, in a suburb of Darien or yeah, which a, is part, Rowayton, a neighborhood
4: Rowayton. of Rowayton. Rowayton is the most
1: beautiful yeah. little place.
4: That's yeah, Fairfield and County. And the
5: restaurant's very tiny, yes. but yeah. they were making a soft-shell crab BLT. Amen. <gasps> Bacon, lettuce, and tomato with oh a little sort of God. chipotle mayonnaise on oh it. My oh, my God. No, no, it was no.
4: crispy, so good. Crispy oh. crab.
5: Crispy crab. Fried. Oh, yeah. On the bun. With a little, little, bun or little bread? batter on it. Bunner On a bun. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a burger bun oh. with a side of fries. Do they deliver. You're and the fries there me. are killer, too. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> so good. The restaurant. So was that your so first of the year? Right. That was my first one this year. Nice.
1: <gasps> Let's have that at our website. Food yeah. 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 I think I even have a picture of it. No,
4: oh, right? I have have it's up, it up there, there right
1: oh, now.
5: Yeah. Yeah. The that season is, is so short. it was short. so it is short.
4: I know. Yeah, and it started a, a week ago, maybe, two weeks ago. So I go to the fish market. for the next couple of weeks.
1: You know, for me, it's starfish in Guilford. Because that's right near where I live. As you're listening now, you you go to your fish market. Mm-hmm. And I do that because I don't individually know how to clean soft And they'll crab, clean it for you. And they just clean it for you. But mm. this is the time now to yeah. get them. And it's so easy to make it home mm. once you get them cleaned. And it's a very simple process sure. for them. Yeah. Um, it takes two seconds. And for some people. But anyway, Mark, thank you for that.
4: My pleasure. And brown butter. That's the key. Brown, brown, so, brown butter so, for dinner. Like BLT so, for lunch, brown, brown butter for dinner.
1: <laughs> no, you can do brown butter yep, I like it. with sliced almonds yep. and, capers. Um, I like lemon capers and capers and lemon. Yeah. Mm. And there's not a reason in the world to not make that into a oh sandwich and throw a few strips of bacon oh on my there. God. Oh, yeah. Okay, As so drizzled we're...
4: the brown butter right over the top so it soaks a little bit into the things bun. We're putting together oh, here. This oh, is oh, really...
1: Man. <laughs> Can I say that your Pasqua Romeo and Julia Bianco would be just staggering? This would
5: be killer with it. Killer with that.
1: it. Some people are freaked out by the crunchiness of a softshell crab, but I just say go for it because <sighs> they feel like they're eating the outside, the bones or something. But it all that's,
4: crunches that's up in your mouth. That's the best part. Like, you can eat oh every God, part of it. It's yeah. so good. It's
5: so delicious. So
4: wherever you're going this weekend, if you're going to be in the north, the south, wherever you are in Connecticut, just or even <laughs> right. Long Island, just look it up and find a place for crabs. Soft-shell crabs but go to your market because yeah. they're
1: bringing them in yeah. now coming up we've got steve Reichlin, who is uh, one of the great barbecue people with ideas for sauces and rubs and whatnot and then a woman of our dreams in our third segment we can't wait to talk with her amy dickinson of the Ask Amy Advice column and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She is the best, the best, the best, so stick around for that segment. More mouth-watering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, and I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foochmoves.org, and we'll be right back.
3: You ate a roast last night, and
5: a ham today. You ate a sack of beans with no delay. You had neck bones and rice, a pig feeding greens. I wonder, do you know what a diet really means? You know you.
2: Listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This show originally aired in 2017.
5: Bees and cornbread.
4: And cornbread had a fight. Beans Beans knocked cornbread out of sight. Cornbread said, "Now that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. I'll be ready."
1: Well, there's just no way we could leave that off the show. Maybe someday, <laughs> but it's just no way. There's too many kids and oh. grown-ups who depend on that particular song. That, so It's here such it is. a great song. Uh, I mean, the, just mm. that chorus, right, Chris, Robin? Love it. Just um, love it. Okay, so here's the thing at this point, I always say, is the podcast, which is a copy of the show, we can send it to your inbox so that you can listen on your schedule. You just sign up once. and you go to foochmoos.org. And we thought we should get into some barbecue because it is a season. Yeah. We're going to talk with Steve Reichlin, who is what we think of as Mr. Barbecue. He's the barbecue king in America. There's no question about that. And he's got a new book out called Barbecue Sauces, Rubs, and Marinades. And this is for everyday people like us. And mm-hmm. what we love about this is that these are so simple. And this is the subtle key to having the best barbecued stuff. You just do these little things to something before you put it on the grill and bang, there you go. It's really terrific. My treasured food buddies are here, senior contributors, Chris Prosperi and Mark Raymond. Uh, Barbecue Sauces, Rubs and Marinades. That's the book and we have it on our website along with many of the sauces and recipes that we're gonna be talking about. Steve Reichlin, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Faith. It's nice to be back. We
1: just had the burgers with that incredible barbecue sauce, and Chris Prosperi made this for us and wants to talk about how easy—I mean, here he is, a chef—how easy this was. He's somebody who does a column for everyday people in the Hartford Current, so he cares about that quality— Chris, tell yeah, us as it, we talk to Steve about it. And I that. love
4: all Steve's recipes. Let me say that first. Yeah, you can buy barbecue sauces. There's a ton of them in the grocery store, but this shows how easy it is. And this is his Smoke Wrangler Bacon Bourbon Barbecue Sauce. It even sounds good, Oh, it? my God. <laughs> Smoke <laughs>
3: Wrangler. You know, bacon, uh, I mean, anything tastes better than bacon. <laughs> and and this brew, agreed. agreed. And barbecue sauce <laughs> is, uh, Trust
1: is me, we know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. We're, we're into
4: this. So it's really easy. You just take some bacon, chop it up. You cook it over median heat until it browns. Keep it stirring. And then you add vinegar, ketchup, sugar, pepper flakes, black pepper, bourbon. Ooh, come on, Faith. Come on. Mm-hmm. That's where Faith starts smiling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you gradually bring it to a boil. Bro- let it simmer. A little, on co- little salt, too. A yeah, little, little salt. salt Yeah, in there. And then you just bring it to a simmer. Let it thicken about 15, 20 minutes. You stir in that little bit of salt. That's it. So it keeps for a couple of weeks, and then we put it on those burgers. I
1: love that. Keeps for a couple of weeks because those flavors marry over time, so it's Mm -hmm. even better with a little bit of aging to that sauce. These are things you can do ahead so you're not crazy when people are there. And now we come to the companion recipe to that sauce, the barbecue burger itself. Steve, you're calling for ground beef, and your favorite is a mixture of ground chuck and sirloin.
3: Yep, 18% fat. You don't want a burger that's too lean. Okay. No. Now, <laughs> um, so
1: you've got lettuce on this burger, a little olive oil, some more bacon, a tomato that sauce that we just made but here's the question you put a rub on here tell me about this
3: it's my Kansas City sweet and smoky rub and you know the whole name of the game in barbecue and also in grilling is layering flavors okay so you put a rub on before the meat cooks you might baste it with a butter or mop sauce while it's on the griller smoker And then a barbecue sauce at the end. you built three distinct layers of flavor. And that is really the secret of great barbecue.
1: Can I ask you and Chris, this kind of layering, is this something the palate can truly figure out? Because in the barbecue sauce, we heard some similar things. What do you both say about that? Can the palate do that? Can it detect this kind of layering?
3: Yeah, absolutely. If you think about it. I mean, we eat in stratifications, right? I mean, you take a bite of a burger like this, and your taste buds are going to taste the various layers separately it's not until you you know you take a good mouthful and start to chew it that they blend together. so the burger first of all you're teeth sink into this soft, sweet bun, and then you hit a little layer of crunch. Mm. And the crunch comes from the toasted bun, buttered and toasted. Then you get a little salty zing of bacon. You've got a Mm. fresh, luscious tomato. You've got this sweet, smoky barbecue sauce. Uh, And then one thing we do on the lettuce, I mean, very important to put lettuce under a burger on a bun. Uh, The lettuce keeps the juices from making the bottom bun soggy. I like to grill the lettuce. So, you get kind of an herbaceous flavor that may... The, the the smell of it on the grill may remind you of a substance that'll probably become legal and... In Connecticut, Connecticut not already.
4: <laughs> yeah, they're saying next year, maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this might be the sexiest but, barbecue man alive, yeah. right? Like, but, Faith, <laughs> you
4: said it when you were eating this burger. You said, wow, that's an amazing burger. So yeah. when you said layering and can you taste it, yeah. that statement should cue you right into, yes, you can taste that. Because that's why you said, wow, this is an amazing burger. It wasn't magic. It was that layering of the flavors that really Bring it alive in your mouth at every bite and every second of every bite that you taste those different things. And my
1: job is to explain why this happens. And is it worth one little extra step to make this little tiny rub, which is simple. Is it worth it to do this? And you're all helping us understand, yep, it is.
4: Okay. And he showed me even because I'm a salt and pepper guy on a hamburger. It's funny because I put rubs on pork. I put rubs on beef. I put rubs on lamb. This is the first time I've ever put a rub on a hamburger. We're sitting there going, duh, why haven't we done this before? Who would
1: think to do this? So this is Stephen Reichlin. His book is called um, Barbecue Sauces, Rubs, and Marinades also has bastes and butters and glazes too. So about 200 recipes, and these are the little things you do to make your barbecued thing really sing, okay? I am a, a rib person. I'm just like a rib maniac. If you put me in the presence of really, Mark, you're nodding your oh, head. Oh, yeah. Really <laughs> good <laughs> ribs. I'm Rib-ish. just crazy. That's our nickname. Crazy, for it crazy. Like barbecue so, time. By the way, that hamburger recipe we just talked about is at foodschmooze.org. And so is this, these righteous ribs. So we well, have got baby back ribs and your basic barbecue rub and then a cider squirt, we're gonna tell you about that, Mm -hmm. and then a sweet and smoky barbecue sauce. Here's your layering. Now, right away, you hear me talking about, what, four things, and people are going to say, I I don't want to do four things. Why does this work?
3: It's super easy. You've got a basic barbecue, rub, and Just to get things out of the way, it's uh, equal parts salt, pepper, paprika, and brown sugar. That ought to be around all the time. And if it takes you more than six seconds to make, you're a slow poke. The cider (laughs) squirt is actually a mixture of apple cider, cider vinegar, bourbon, water, Worcestershire sauce, lemon juice. Now, squirt is a mixture that you apply to food while it's on the grill, mm-hmm. okay. So you've got the rub on first while the meat is raw. You've got the squirt on while it's cooking, and then you've got the barbecue sauce at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm. So and, so um, the barbecue is, sauce
1: is like a drizzle.
3: Well, well, it's a little bit more than that. What I do, it I call it a lacquer. I cook the ribs without the sauce, right? Because if you put sauce, a sweet mm-hmm. sauce on, two hours of cooking is going to burn the sugar in the sauce way before the meat is done. So right. the sauce goes on right at the end. And once the sauce is on, you move the ribs directly over a hot fire and you sear the sauce right into the meat. Ooh.
5: Love it. Love.
1: <laughs> Yum. <laughs> Doesn't that give you
5: chills? <laughs> I'm going to purr over here.
3: If barbecue were fashion, this book would be about the accessories, right? The jewelry, yeah. mm-hmm. the earrings, mm-hmm. the handbags, the shoes, the belts. <laughs> everything that goes in busy. a winsome person even more so.
4: Wow. Yeah, I like that description. That definitely makes sense. Yeah.
3: You know, I mean, beauties are a dime a dozen, but it's the accessories that really make them pop.
1: So for pork fans, I am among them, uh, we have Korean pulled pork. You know, there's this thing that's going on right Big now knife. where everybody, you go to a different country, you try something, and you're just dazzled by it. And people are more and more turning to books that give an international profile. And Steve is one of those people who's saying, you know, you can put these international flavors into your home barbecue.
4: When I saw this recipe come up, I was wondering if there are similarities between the Korean barbecue and and what we call our American
3: barbecue. Well, very much so. I mean, first of all, think of the flavor interplay, right? It's sweet and salty. So that's very much a part of the American barbecue profile. This recipe is interesting. It's inspired by a uh, barbecue restaurant in Atlanta where the husband was a pit master, uh, tried and true from Texas, and his wife is from Seoul, Korea. Wow. So they have a J&R Euler pit burning hardwood to do the uh, pork shoulder. And then they, um, the Korean barbecue sauce, it contains a very, an ingredient you might be surprised about for Korea, but it's Sprite. So that's given you this <laughs> sweet mm-hmm. lemony flavor. Very and then cool. an ingredient called Gojujong, which yep. is a, a fiery fermented rice and chili paste, which you spread all over the, uh, the outside of the pork butt. Where do you so, get that? Uh, Amazon.com, yeah. any Asian market. And it's starting to
4: cross these, over, uh, too, isn't it, Stephen?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we live in an age now where the world is flat. Thomas uh, uh, Freeman says mm-hmm. we are a global village. Mm-hmm. You know, you can find all of these ingredients everywhere you go.
1: Well, not exactly. but but. Um, uh, well, with Amazon, what? you yeah. can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. So for this Korean pulled pork, you're using a Boston butt, which is a favorite cut of mine. This is bone-in pork shoulder roast. And it's preferable if the skin is on. And this is one of the less expensive cuts and one of the most flavorful because of the bone in there. So we've got this on the website. And the KB sauce, the Korean barbecue sauce, and a cup of Sprite or other lemon-lime soda, wouldn't you just say that that's, it's like the old ham with Coca-Cola. People would do this, my mother did this, with cloves and it would put a glaze on the ham and that's really what the soda's doing here right
3: yeah absolutely it's adding a sweet sour element mostly sweet it's offsetting some of the heat sure beats adding water right because it's got flavor and it's fun there's whimsy let's not forget, you know, every barbecue sauce, there should be a secret ingredient. There should be a little fun and whimsy. Without a doubt. Traditionally, with pulled pork, you would top it with slaw, either mustard slaw if you're in South Carolina or vinegar slaw if you're in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So the twist here is uh, we put kimchi on. Love uh, kimchi. gives you a beautiful crunch. You've got this sweet, salty, spicy barbecue sauce. Mm-hmm. Very garlicky. The smoky, shredded pork. Man, I just ate lunch, and I'm looking at that, and it's, I'm hungry. Yeah. Stephen, what
1: would you give us as a tip in terms of the person who has done grilling the same old way and is maybe a little bit intimidated about trying some new things? Is there one thing that is, I mean, there are many things, but is there one thing to take the next step and then not feel so scared about learning?
3: I mentioned that 4-4 rub, the equal parts salt, pepper, paprika, brown sugar. That is super easy. And it will make virtually everything you cook on the grill taste better. Another recipe, you know, that's sort of one of those first tries in the book, is called the only marinade you'll ever need. It's a lemon juice, olive oil, fresh herb marinade. Extremely variable, depending on what herb is in season or what's in your refrigerator, what citrus fruit you have on hand, what oil you have on hand. Uh, You can go in an Asian direction by using sesame oil and rice vinegar. So it's really kind of a broad blueprint rather than a recipe to be followed slavishly. Now, that marinade goes great with shrimp, with fish, with chicken, with beef, with veal. In other words, it's a protein marinade. You can use it for anything. And if your meat comes out dry on the grill or uninteresting, I mean, that's a great place to start.
1: Are we going to all these extremes because the flavor has been through breeding, feeding, and whatnot, has been sort of bred out of everything, and that we need these things Mm -hmm. now to make Mm -hmm. the protein taste interesting.
3: I don't know. I mean, yes, obviously, supermarket meats do not have the kind of flavor that heirloom pork does. But one thing about barbecue I really like is it's complicated, and it's supposed to be complicated. Well, this is an opportunity, darn it, to add three layers of flavor to make a barbecue sauce with 12 ingredients in it. Simplicity doesn't always trump complexity.
1: Hmm. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. The book is called Stephen Reichlin: Barbecue Sauces, Rubs, and Marinades. Amy Dickinson of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me in the Ask Amy Advice column is our guest next, so stay with us. We love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers for on-demand podcast delivery of the Food Schmooze Party every week. And to find terrific food, wine, cocktails, restaurant recommendations, hot topics, our short, fun streaming videos, and the recipes we feature, we are always online talking with you at foodschmooze.org. We'll be right back.
2: Listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This show originally aired in 2017. Wanna hang out with you. Just wanna hang out with you.
1: This is the Food Schmooze Party, offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York. New York includes Westchester County, the East End of Long Island, the Hamptons, of course. The senior producer is Robin doyon Aiken. To hear this show on WNPR, it airs Thursdays at three podcasts. And our curated recommendations are always online at foodschmooze.org. Well, here she is, Amy Dickinson. She is the author of the Ask Amy Advice column, which is syndicated, about 200 newspapers, I think, and a panelist, you might know her name on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which happens to be my favorite show on all of public radio. She's done lots of essays, has a book out called Strangers Tend to Tell Me Things, And it's a memoir of love, loss, and coming home. Uh, We wanted to know about Amy's food habits when she was growing up. Amy, welcome to the Food Party.
0: Hi, Faye. Thank you. So growing up, what was it like? Well, I grew up on a dairy farm in upstate New York, and I was fed by a mother who hated to cook and was a great cook. So food for me, there's always this combination of like joy and dread. My mother really pulled from what we had in our barn. I mean, if you can imagine this, I would ladle cream skimmed from on top of our milk jug. I would ladle the cream off onto my Rice Krispies in the morning. Oh, man. My mother made butter, and she wasn't like a Martha Stewart type. She was just like, that's what we had. We didn't have any money. And my mother mastered some of these very timeless techniques, which of course were not in style in the 1970s when she was doing it, but are very much in style now. We rendered lard from our hogs. We ate one Holstein a year, the grizzliest, oldest dairy cow that had passed beyond productive years. Yeah. So I grew up with a very, an amazing, real, in quotes, palette of offerings. We made maple sugar candy and toffee by throwing it hot syrup under the snow. We made our own syrup. (laughs) We had bees. I mean, all of it. But I think I might have inherited her attitude toward cooking because my mother, like me, well, unlike me, my mother wanted to be a writer but really was not able to do that. Yeah. Given of the cooking she was doing and and she <laughs> was farming. Yeah, and she was a very very skilled at all the domestic arts. But I was raised by a woman, a very independent woman who really wanted a different life, and of course now I am living the life that she might have wanted.
5: Mm.
1: I uh, was touched by your experience with your mother and growing up with her and also being there for her as she was in the the last chapter of her life. So, you know, I'm interested in this idea that the irony is that you're leading her life, and I I bet you would have loved that.
0: (laughs) She was around long enough to enjoy it, you know, if she wanted. But ironically, Faith, I have to tell you, I've never discussed this before, But there was only one chapter from the book that was cut. It was cut by mutual agreement from me and the editor because we just could not find a place to fit this chapter in. And I'm determined to publish this chapter. It was called Government Cheese, and it was about the food in our household and eating and the fact that despite being surrounded by all this bounty, Mm. my father, because he was a bit of a scoundrel and a cheat, liked to take government cheese off of the truck at the milk plant where we took our milk for processing. You know what government cheese is. I do. Yeah, it's surplus cheese. So we were forced, my mother was forced to cook with this and we ate it and it came in these giant, giant, giant bricks. I know. One brick could last for six months, you know, you're eating this stuff. So I really appreciate being asked to talk about food because it's actually a huge part of my story.
1: Amy, I have chills up the back of my neck from you mentioning that because one of the most poignant things I've ever done in my career, which has been quite a while, was to go to an area of New Haven where our studios are called The Hill, and there are people who are very under-resourced, is the new phrase. Um, They're poor. And they're doing their best. And it was during the Reagan era, and he was handing out in various neighborhoods this government cheese, Mm -hmm. these blocks of orange processed cheese that you were talking about. And I decided to cover it. So I went there with my tape recorder and expected to see, you know, a few people. And the line went on for—I couldn't see the end. And I thought, really— A five-pound block of cheese, there are this many people who are hungry and need this free cheese. And so that cheese has a really special place in my heart, I'll tell you that.
0: Thank you for telling me that, Faith. And I can relate to anybody who consumed this particular product. It was very stigmatized, and I certainly felt a lot of shame, not only because we were consuming it, which meant that we were poor enough to get it, although I do believe my father filched it. Um, So not only emphasizing our poverty, but really our poverty in the face of living on a farm surrounded by bounty.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, it
0: was very, yeah, it was very, very embarrassing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's why I respect that these people were what's what's the name of the cheese that not cheese whiz, but what's that other cheese? Velveeta. Yeah. I describe
0: it that's in my what chapter it is. as having the taste of styrofoam packing peanuts but it had this amazing viscosity. Yeah. So it it never totally melted but it would form Science. incredibly long strands. So it was actually kind of fun and challenging to eat if you tried to make a, a grilled cheese sandwich, for instance. <laughs> oh
1: I know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It
0: was very rubbery. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean I don't I, I'm
1: trying not to laugh, but it's just funny. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the fact that yeah. that many people are so hungry yeah. that they want that block of cheese and I so would I mm-hmm. in those circumstances. Um well I thank you for for saying all that mm-hmm. and uh it really I I hope you do write that chapter, and I'm thinking of The New Yorker for that chapter. Well, it's
0: written and ready to go, so I'm looking forward to publishing it in an appropriate venue. Yeah, thank you.
1: Yeah, please reach out to us on Facebook. Okay, (laughs) editors. So I didn't have any idea we would start out like this, Mm -hmm. and um, (laughs) you're on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and I keep thinking of Peter Sagal saying to you, you know, Amy... (laughs) You know, this is too (laughs) poignant. This is is not funny enough. You're not being mean enough. You're too nice a person.
0: Tell me about that. Well, um, as I say in the book, Peter Sagal always wants me to be a little more mean and sort of, I guess you would say snarky in my responses in my advice column. (laughs) And I get that because that's really entertaining. And he's my friend and he wants me to go viral every single day. um, But that is not my jam. You know, I actually take my work as an advice columnist very seriously. I mean, I don't take myself that seriously, but I tend to take other people extremely seriously. And so, yeah, I am um, by and large mainly very... I hope compassionate and respectful in my answers to people who write.
1: You really are. You know, if we lived next door, I'd be I'd be uh, courting you to be best friends. That's the thing. Okay, so here's. Can I just do this because this appears in your book? Strangers tend to tell me things, which they do, and at farmers markets where Amy would not be (laughs) caught dead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's just too precious considering Uh. how she's grown up, but. So this is her memoir. And if I might, there's a question, and this one did go viral, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So right away, she knows what I'm going to do. It's Dear Amy. Here she is. We're talking about her, if you don't know this, is an advice columnist. And by the way, I thought this was fake. Oh,
0: because really? Because it
1: sounds so like something someone had made up to sound like an actual person. Mm-hmm. And and you you can testify that this is Actually, the letter that came to you?
0: It's the exact letter that came in, and the only reason I ran it was I verified it as much as I can by corresponding with the person who wrote it uh, quite a bit. Okay. Dear
1: Amy, I recently discovered that my son, who is 17, is a homosexual. We are part of a church group, and I fear that if people in that group find out, they will make fun of me for having a gay child. He won't listen to reason and he will not stop being gay. I feel, I feel as if he is doing this just to get back at me for forgetting his birthday for the past three years. I have a busy work schedule. Please help him make the right choice in life by not being gay. He won't listen to me, so maybe he will listen to you. And the person signs it, feeling betrayed. Okay. And What's Amy, her answer? So this is Amy. Dear Betrayed, you could teach your son an important lesson, by changing your own sexuality to show him how easy it is. Try it for the next year or so. Stop being a heterosexual to demonstrate to your son that a person's sexuality is a matter of choice, to be dictated by one's parents, the parents' church and social pressure. I assume that my suggestion will evoke a reaction that your sexuality is at the core of who you are. The same is true for your son. He has a right to be accepted by his parents, for being exactly who he is. When you quote unquote forget a child's birthday, you are basically negating him as a person. It's as if you're saying that you have forgotten his presence in the world. How very sad for him. Pressuring your son to change his sexuality is wrong. If you cannot learn to accept him as he is, it might be safest for him to live elsewhere. And then she goes on to talk about PFLAG, the organization for um, parents and friends of lesbians and gays. I, I just thought, brilliant.
4: Brilliant. That's why she's the best.
1: Oh, thanks. That's why, yeah. So, um, okay, so Amy, what was behind the intent to write this memoir, Strangers Tend to Tell Me Things?
0: Honestly, I... <laughs> I I had written a previous memoir. It had really resonated. It had done very, very well. I had always intended Mm -hmm. to write a second one. And after my mother's death, which was a very tender, lengthy process for me, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do anything except for my job. And then I fell into this life story that was so sort of cinematic in a way, and so episodic, and brought up so many of the questions and problems that people write into me about, I simply decided to tell my story in part as a way to communicate with the people who read my column. Hmm. You know, there I am, this sage advice giver, right? Well, guess (laughs) what? I'm pretty messed up. I mean, I have problems, like anybody does. This was my honest attempt to communicate with and connect with the people who have been writing to me for almost 15 years.
1: Well, your story is about being in Freeville, and there's this discussion that was interesting to me because it's timeless. It's as if someone in 1600, 17, 18, 19, or or even before is saying, so-and-so lives down the street, and then there's the cousin, and then there's the aunt, and there's the grandmother, and all these houses keep switching hands, and there's room made for so-and-so because a life circumstance has caused them to move back. And I thought, this is a timeless discussion. Were you aware of that?
0: I think so, Faith, because that's what I grew up in. As I mentioned, and you allude to this, that people who live in small places like islands, for instance, I lived on Block Island off of Rhode Island for many, many months. I notice this on islands and in small towns that are entrenched and isolated, as mine is, property flows back and forth. You know, the people who leave and don't come back are passing through. My family settled here in 1790, and in February, I wish they hadn't, but they did, and they stuck it out. And because of that, there's just this very deep history to just walking down the street. I mean, I know who lives in all the houses, who used to live in all the houses, and it's that kind of place.
1: There's a chapter in your book uh, called The Fallacy of Closure. This is so unfair because I have a minute left. How do you say what that means, the fallacy of closure after your mother's death.
0: Well, I think that uh, we have this idea in America, you know, we're all about moving forward, moving on, and (laughs) Mm. I think there's this idea that we will close the book on things, we'll process things, and then we'll close it, and then you move on to the next thing. Well, guess what? Mm. That's kind of a crock, or at least it was for me, and I never assumed that I would have closure, frankly, because of my advice column, I hear from people who are grieving, sad, you know, off and on throughout their lives. Sure. And so, I mean, there are definitely ways to move forward, healthy ways to move forward. But I ended up feeling that I don't want to close the book. I don't want to. Part of my story is the loss, uh, sometimes incredibly tragic loss, of so many family members And I don't really want to close. I want to live with this, and I want to live with these people and carry on, you know?
1: Yeah, I do. Mm. So this is Amy Dickinson. I guess we're all members of the I love Amy Dickinson (laughs) thing. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Not to sound fawning, but we are. Her memoir is called Strangers Tend to Tell Me Things. It is the book that follows the mighty queens of Freeville. Amy, thank you so much. I really so appreciate who you are. I really do. And by the way, Peter's wrong. Don't change anything. You do not have to be viral. You don't have to be more funny. You don't have to do anything. Don't you, you just... go
5: changing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe be me, right? Yes.
1: <laughs> okay. We are on WNPR Thursdays at 3. Never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton.
3: Body it's when they come to mind